Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flyover State Science, a podcast where two Midwestern scientists demystify the coolest science out of the middle of the country. I'm Jackie. And I'm Kelsey. And we're here to do the research so you don't have to. Thank you all for joining us today for our fifth episode on diabetes, deconstructing type 1 and type 2. We want to thank you again for your following on the Facebook group and visiting our website, reading our blog posts. Thank you so much. Your support means so much to us. And check out the blog. There's been several new articles posted and look out for many more to come. Please submit to us new ideas and questions you may have, and we're happy to dig into it and do the research so you don't have to. In this episode, we're going to talk about diabetes, which is an umbrella term for a really fascinating subset of diseases that basically change how our bodies respond to the food that we eat and prevents us from turning it into the appropriate sort of nutrition that we need to survive. Diabetes impacts a lot of people. So it's estimated that in the United States alone, there's about 29 million people living with both kinds of diabetes. And the CDC actually thinks that this 29 million number is actually low because so many people are living with undiagnosed diabetes. In fact, apparently there's an estimated 80 some million people living with prediabetes, which is the sort of symptoms that indicate that these people might be at risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So we thought this would be an important episode to talk about sort of deconstructing what goes into the science behind type 1 and type 2 to empower people with more knowledge. Type 1 and type 2 diabetes tend to be more associated with the middle and southern parts of the country. So we thought that this would be very relevant to you, our listeners, and we'd like to get started. But if we want to talk about diabetes, which is a disorder which impacts how your body utilizes the food that you eat to turn it into energy, what we have to do is get an understanding of what happens when you eat. When you eat, the whole purpose of it is to liberate from your food the molecules that you can break down to their most basic parts to use for your own cellular biochemical purposes. So I eat a delicious chicken breast, And I can break that down from proteins into amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, in order to use them to build my own proteins in my body. And it just helps that the chicken breast was delicious. When we eat food, the digestion process starts in our mouths, where we start to break apart uh, carbohydrates with enzymes in our saliva. And this digestion process continues as we swallow the food and it goes into our stomachs, where the acid breaks apart proteins into amino acids, and then the digestion continues, and then the digested food moves into the small intestine, where all of these small nutrients, which have now been digested out of the big food itself, are now free-floating and can be transported out of the digested tract and into the bloodstream. And from here, we're going to leave proteins and fats for another day, and we're just going to focus on carbohydrates. So that, that really yummy pastry that I had for breakfast is a delightful confection made of um, starchy carbohydrates, bread, and sugar. This delicious pastry that I ate is actually started to break down in my mouth and ends up at the base of what it is. So carbohydrates are just big chains of sugars that are oriented and made of slightly different sugars to make them the breads and the sugars and the other delicious mouth-watering things that we all know and love. And when these are broken down, they just release different forms of sugar or glucose, which can be released into the bloodstream. Now, glucose is really small and really easily accessible. It can float around in the bloodstream, and it's pretty fast to go from eating to releasing to breaking it down and releasing it into the bloodstream. And once glucose hits the bloodstream, your body notices and your body is very attentive to different changes and things. So once your blood glucose starts to rise, your nervous system and your talks to your pancreas, and your pancreas also senses your blood glucose and starts to release insulin. For more info on this process, listen to our layover where Jackie dives really deep into the insulin wormhole. 
Come with us. It's great. (laughs) And insulin gets released. And the process of insulin release makes our, the cells in our body take up the glucose out of our blood just till it hits a certain point where we are at this really nice equilibrium where our body keeps just enough glucose in our blood to keep normal operations going. Why is this so tightly regulated? Because glucose is our brain's favorite food. So if you're really hungry for bread a lot of the time, blame your brain because the brain really, really loves glucose as its primary form of energy. And in fact, your brain is your number one consumer of glucose in your whole body. Glucose is small enough that it can cross the blood-brain barrier, which we talked about in our episode about the brain and neurodegeneration. So maintaining that very tight level of glucose so that your brain has enough available when it needs it is very important. When there's not enough sugar in your blood, then your brain suffers and you can feel foggy. And perhaps like you can't really remember things very well, it might make you feel very irritable. And if there's too much sugar, that's also not a good thing either. It can make you feel kind of hot and sweaty, maybe antsy and nervous. So our body has developed this incredible control over our blood glucose levels. And it can regulate itself when we eat and importantly between eating periods like when we're sleeping to make sure that our brain continues to get all of the energy it needs as well as the rest of our body. Right, because like we've talked about in the layover, even when you're not eating or drinking anything, if you go for long periods of fasting, such as sleeping, or perhaps you're trying this new intermittent fasting thing you read about on the internet, your body can still talk to your different organs and either create new glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis, which is literally just building new glucose in Latin. It can also crack into stores of glycogen, which is just big chains of stored glucose that are saved away for a rainy day or times where you don't have any. You can use those glycogen stores to bump up your blood glucose when there's no food coming in. And that is all the work of your liver. It's your liver's job to be pushing out glucose when you're not eating and you're in the fasting state, and it's controlling the blood glucose levels. Thank you, liver. You are such a multitasker. But the important thing to take home from this is that the body is really, really good at maintaining a very stable level of equilibrium or when everything is in the perfect balance. And we call this homeostasis, which is where the push and the pull are just equal. The body keeps the blood glucose right at this perfect range roughly around 100 uh, milligrams per deciliter, give or take a little bit. And it keeps the pH at a certain level and everything. The body has very good fail-safe measures in place to keep things working in a very tight range of function. But that doesn't always happen. In some disease states, we lose our homeostasis and our equilibrium. And this is particularly potent in the context of diabetes. When we're talking about a diabetes state, we'll have to break it down because there's two very different arms of what goes on. For type 1 diabetes, this is actually an autoimmune disorder. So in patients with type 1 diabetes, what happens is their immune system, which defends them against viruses and bacteria and um, cells that aren't functioning appropriately, their, uh, their immune system will accidentally recognize the beta cells in their pancreas as being not self, which is to say that for some reason it reads a warning on these cells which do belong to your human body, but for some reason the immune cells can't understand that. When this happens, it kills these beta cells, which are the only source that our body has of insulin. So in these people, because of a case of mistaken pancreas identity, they no longer produce insulin to respond to the absorption process after a meal. So you eat a hamburger, and instead of your blood glucose starting to rise, then insulin kicking in so it goes down again, your blood glucose can go up, 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 up with no end in sight. Because your body doesn't have that signal to say, hey, take in that glucose from the blood and use it, which is not good. 
Well, it's kind of wild. In a lot of different systems that are very important, you will have a couple redundancies or other molecules that serve the same purpose in case one of them goes wrong. But in this case, insulin is the only thing that we have that causes cells to internalize blood glucose and stabilize blood glucose. So it's kind of interesting that that's our only mechanism that we have. That is very odd. Right? Thinking about important yeah. stuff like that, there's usually a couple copies of a couple similar but slightly different proteins or genes that prevent if there were a mutation or something bad to have happened. Anyway. Yeah. So this that's what happens in type 1 is your own body mistakenly attacks the, the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas and you no longer have insulin to respond to the blood sugar spikes after the meal or subsequent um, blood sugar drops which can be very dangerous both at the highs and the lows, which can cause people to go into comas or do extensive nerve damage. It's very, very bad. But in type 2, however, um, it's argued that these should have different names because these are very different diseases. In type 2 diabetes, the rules are a little bit looser, um, and there's still more that we're learning about type 2 and type 1. But in general, for type 2 diabetes, these patients still produce insulin, their pancreas is still work, but for some reason, their cells in their body stop responding to insulin. So even though that protein is still circulating around in the bloodstream, it's still binding to the receptor, but for some reason, it's not sending the right signals to make those glucose transporters get to the surface and internalize that blood sugar. Because as we mentioned in the layover, insulin causes huge changes in the cells that it binds to. And when you that signaling is messed up, you could have a whole bunch of dysfunction going on. And it's important that we have that very, uh, very potent signaling going on. And when it doesn't, then it's kind of a problem because, like we said, there's only one molecule that does what insulin does. So even though there is still insulin, these people still end up with the same problem, which is they have the wrong amount of blood sh of sugar in their blood. But strangely enough, there is a phase where we call prediabetes or prediabetic for people. Um, in a lot of diseases, you don't have that. You don't get labeled as precancerous. In diabetes type 2 context, you can be type 2 prediabetic, which means that you are exhibiting symptoms of insulin resistance. And this is often associated with the lifestyle that is considered to be part of the Western lifestyle. So perhaps a higher BMI, higher body weight, a diet that is higher in carbs and fats. From the genetic standpoint, it's actually very interesting because we haven't found the genetic traits mm -hmm. that are associated with this. Mm -hmm. Or there's too many to narrow it down to a specific few. So we can't point to a group of genes and say, if you have... These mutations, you will get type 2 diabetes. We just don't have that level of resolution. When there's that many players that are a part of the system, it's very hard to say, to look at it down without just deep sequencing someone's entire genome, which makes a ton of data, costs a lot of money, and ultimately might not even really tell you as much as we're able to interpret with what we know right now. It's that nature-nurture aspect. There's a lot of both mm -hmm. going on that plays into the development of diabetes. If you have an identical twin and they develop type 2 diabetes, it's nearly certain that you will also develop type 2 diabetes. So there's, there's definitely a genetic component there, but we don't fully understand it. But the cool thing about type 2 diabetes, and I didn't mention for type 1, is that there is no intervention for type 1 diabetes besides injecting yourself with insulin and tightly regulating what you eat and how you eat and how you exercise to give yourself that homeostasis that your body usually gives you. But for type 2, for a lot of people, not for everyone, but for a lot of people with the appropriate diet and exercise and a drug regimen and sometimes insulin injectables, some people are able to manage their type 2 diabetes down to the fact that it is manageable with lifestyle, which is amazing that something that is very disruptive and horrible can happen, but we can also fix it for some people. So for the remainder of today's episode, we are going to focus mostly on type 2 diabetes. First, we're going to take a look at what it actually means to be insulin resistant 
and what changes to the body are going on in someone with type 2 diabetes and how high blood sugar can cause long-term problems. Later, we're going to hear the incredible story of therapeutics relating to type 2 diabetes and the front runner, metformin, and the history of that drug. And finally, we're going to end with our Mythbusters. So first, what does it mean to be insulin resistant? Because that's kind of the term we use when we talk about someone with type 2 diabetes. So if you recall to the first part of today's episode, someone with type 1 diabetes completely lacks insulin. They are dysregulated on the level of just not having the messenger there. They have no insulin to tell the body that it needs to take glucose up. Now for type 2 patients, they have insulin generally. However, it's not signaling to the body in the same way that it should be. The messenger's there, but the signal's not getting to the cells. And when this signal is not being transmitted to the cells, what this leaves you with is a bunch of insulin in your system, as well as way too much blood sugar, especially after eating. For anybody who's interested more in depth about insulin signaling, I encourage you to check out our layover all about insulin. But we're going to cover just real briefly some of the things we talked about in the layover, particularly what insulin signaling does to tissues like muscle, liver, and fat. When insulin binds to muscle cells, it tells muscle to take in glucose after a meal. And this number shocked me. The fact that after you eat, 75% of the glucose from that meal ends up in your muscles. What? Is this after the brain has had a cut of the glucose or is this of the total? Do you know? I don't know. It's the figure that I read said specifically like post-meal glucose. So I don't know if there's like a steady amount of glucose that's always being fed to the brain. And so they kind of subtracted that out. Well, as your brain is the number one glucose consumer, you do have pound per pound a lot more mass of muscle. So it could make sense. I don't think about, I just was conceptually trying to understand how the majority of the glucose from a meal is ending up on our muscles. You, you don't feel, like, fatigued before a meal, right? Like, if you'd expect, like, your muscles to be craving glucose. But also thinking about it, too, is you have more than just the skeletal muscle that, you know, is involved in, like, lifting things in your arms or walking with your legs. You also have things like your heart or all of the smooth muscle that is contracting and constantly working with no active control from your brain. So I can imagine that those smooth muscles, too, could take up, as well as the muscles that line the digestive tract, could also yeah. probably take up quite a bit of glucose because those are working pretty consistently. Yeah, so that makes it, so it's more about the quantity, that there's just more muscle to supply. Muscle is kind of a quote-unquote dead end for glucose because once it goes in, it does not come out. Like Glucose that goes into your muscles has literally no way of coming back out. Muscle is a huge mooch and gives, it takes in a lot of glucose, but does not give any back. Yeah, because once glucose actually goes into your cells, it kind of gets this little chemical tag put on it that says you're not going back out. And unless you have a mechanism to take that tag off, which your liver does, but your muscle does not, your glucose is trapped. So in type 2 diabetes, insulin is likely still being released from the pancreas, but when it binds to its receptor on the target tissues like muscle and liver, the gate doesn't open. There's no glucose transporter on the surface of those cells to actually let glucose in. People are home, but no one answers. I wanted to point out another important tissue that we really didn't talk about a lot in our layover segment on insulin and that is the adipose tissue or the fat tissue in the body. And we know that obesity is a major risk factor for diabetes. Um, Of course, there are always exceptions. Being obese does not mean that you will develop type 2 diabetes. However, obesity is a risk factor, especially if you have a history of type 2 diabetes in your family. And if you are yourself overweight or obese, Having that history in your family indicates that you might be more susceptible to developing type 2 diabetes. So obesity does play a role for some people, but not for all of them. Some people who are at a healthy weight and live a healthy lifestyle can still develop type 2 diabetes. 
unfair role of the genetic dice. And as we'll kind of mention later, there's a lot of risk factors, and we still don't really understand all the factors that go into developing this disease. Combing the literature in preparing for this episode, the literature really seems to suggest an important role for the adipose tissue. And one of the most compelling pieces of evidence pointing to this is the fact that in some studies where we block glucose transport in adipose tissue, so specifically blocking glucose metabolism or glucose uptake in adipose tissue, causes insulin resistance in liver and muscle tissue. So if the adipose tissue can't take in glucose, then that tells these other tissues to become insulin resistant too? Yeah, so there's something about adipose tissues that is controlling the other glucose metabolizing tissues of the body. So there's some long-range effects going on that we think are being mediated by the fat cells. Adipose tissue is really interesting. It's very different. It's an endocrine organ in itself, especially the more adipose tissue that you have. So fat tissue is doing a lot more than just storing fat. And for some reason, it's not a huge topic in the scientific chatterbox. There is a realm of people who study adipose tissue, but I think that adipose tissue and fat tissue still has a prominent time in the sun coming sometime. And you would think with its these lines of evidence pointing to its role in controlling this insulin-resistant state, you think that there would be more desire to study that area. So if the problem with type 2 tends to end up with people having high blood glucose, what's the matter with that? So we talk about a lot about how dangerous that is, but what does high glucose actually end up doing that's so bad? Right. So we talked about the fact that it's bad for the glucose not to get into those cells that need them like liver, muscle, and fat. High blood glucose is associated with a lot of long-term complications, and including cardiovascular problems, problems with your kidneys, diabetic neuropathy, so problems with your nerves, especially in your appendages and extremities, as well as um, vision problems. So all of those things seem to share a common root, which is an issue with the circulatory system. We think that or the main damage is occurring to special type of cells called endothelial cells. And these are the cells that line your blood vessels. The thinking is blood glucose is streaming into those endothelial cells and kind of inundating them. And over the course of months and years, it leads to damage of those cells through a special mechanism called reactive oxygen species. Eventually, this leads to hardening and thickening of vessel walls, leads to poor vascularization of nerves, which causes the neuropathy. So it can kill or shrink some of the blood vessels that send nutrients to and from your nerves and these different organs. Right, right, right. Because the purpose of blood, of course, is to deliver nutrients and oxygen to tissues. So when it's not doing that effectively because the vessel wall is constricted and it's hardened, it causes all these horrible outcomes. Cardiovascular disease is actually the primary cause of morbidity and mortality related to diabetes. So we know that this is an, a very real outcome from having high blood glucose for extended periods of time. As a sidebar, um, I use the term morbidity and mortality quite a bit too in the, term of, in the realm of cancer research. And when, when people say morbidity and mortality, so mortality obviously refers to death. So much mortality associated with type 2 diabetes means that death's caused by type 2 diabetes. But there's more to life than just death, which is where morbidity comes into play. Because oftentimes having type 2 diabetes or another disease will make you more susceptible to developing other illnesses or diseases. And that's when we call things comorbid which are illnesses or diseases that tend to occur together. In general, it's kind of hard with a patient with type 2 diabetes or even a patient with cancer to say that this death is because of this disease. It's oftentimes because of a number of problems from the disease. So that is kind of our overview of what it means to be insulin resistant and how insulin signaling may still be taking place, but you're 
tissues aren't responding to it appropriately, the importance of adipose tissue, and what are the risks associated with having high blood glucose for extended periods of time. So before we talk about how we treat type 2 diabetes, I think it's important to talk about what sort of risk factors or development factors go into type 2 diabetes. So as we mentioned earlier, obesity is one of the leading factors. And this was less prominent decades ago. But as time has gone on, in recent years, we have seen an increase in the rates of type 2 diabetes that have been tracking right along with our rates of obesity in different parts of the country and in different parts of the world. And in particular, type 2 diabetes in children was previously, in decades past, was fairly rare. Type 1 was tended to be more common, which is why type 1 diabetes is often still referred to as juvenile onset diabetes. However, now, as obesity rates in children, at least in the United States, have gone up in the past several years, so have the rates of type 2 diabetes incidence in children. From these sort of numbers, we can see globally that obesity plays a big role as a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. But there's more than that, too. There are lots of factors that go into the development of type 2 diabetes. We think that the microbiome may be involved, and we're going to be doing a microbiome episode soon. Yay, get excited for that. The microbiome is involved in everything. These bacteria, which outnumber your human cells, are probably controlling every aspect of our minds and every aspect of our lives. It's cool. They're everywhere. And it's a good thing. Early life influences. So if your mother had gestational diabetes or you experience early life stress, that may contribute to your development of type 2 later in life diet, and energy level. What may not have been clear earlier when I was talking, because that's me, is that I would argue that type 2 is a very diverse disease. There's a lot of different ways that we can get to the end product of high blood glucose, and there's a lot of different pathways that insulin hits throughout the body that can be disrupted and cause problems, and there's a lot of different things that can lead to insulin resistance. So it's, it's a very diverse landscape. And when we talked earlier about how diabetes is kind of a misnomer, a very large umbrella for two very different diseases, type 1 and type 2, type 2 diabetes is also a very large umbrella for a very big realm of diseases which, are, which fall underneath the category of type 2. Because like we said in a couple of caveats, some type 2 diabetic patients can actually develop type 1 and stop producing insulin, and it gets very complicated. So we're kind of talking at the global level about insulin resistance, but just like type 1, there are a lot of nuances with type 2 diabetes that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of. Yeah, I'm sure you could put two type 2 diabetics side by side and compare their biology and see considerable differences. But the interesting thing about type 2 diabetes, which really fascinates me, is that unlike type 1, where the only real treatment is insulin therapy through a pump or through injectable insulin, is that for type 2 diabetes, we have a lot of different ways to treat this with either therapeutics, so drugs, or with lifestyle changes. And between these two treatments, We can treat, reverse, or prevent type 2 diabetes, which is really, really powerful. And in fact, exercising and eating a um, healthy diet full of fruits and veggies and low-ish carbs and good proteins can cut your risk for developing type 2 diabetes by 58%. In general, for most patients, diet and lifestyle interventions for type 2 diabetes tend to be the common prescription from doctors. Especially at the point of pre-diabetes, so when you're, you have elevated levels of blood glucose, but you're not technically at the realm of type 2 diabetes, that is when it is most important to make these lifestyle changes and is the best thing you can do to prevent the onset of diabetes. It's amazing that we actually have a range where we can tell people you are pre-diabetic, you are at risk for developing this disease, you are starting to develop it, but with these changes, we can prevent this, we can reverse this. It's absolutely very powerful. 
And at that point, it's actually more helpful to make the lifestyle changes than take the drug. So even though the drugs help, it's not as, I mean, the data show it's not as helpful as exercise and diet. And there's a lot to be said, too, about the over-reliance of our population on drugs because we have made so many amazing therapeutic advancements that there tends to be an attitude in the medical community and in the non-medical community, which is, well, if it's easier to take a drug, why wouldn't I take the drug? Sometimes it really just is the best medicine is good food and exercising more. Lifestyle changes are really hard, and we acknowledge that. And for some people, lifestyle changes aren't enough. And because of this, people started looking for therapeutic ways to go in and make a drug that can cause cells to take in this excess blood glucose in patients with type 2 diabetes. Now, as a caveat, these tend to only work in patients with type 2 diabetes. Patients with type 1, the big issue is that they don't have the insulin to signal, but with type 2, since they have insulin but they're not completing the signaling circuit, what we've done is gone in and developed drugs to skip ahead a few steps past that point where the message isn't being carried. And there are actually 11 different categories of drugs that we can use to treat type 2 diabetes, which all talk to the cells at different points in this normal insulin pathway, which sort of circumvent the issue that the insulin receptor isn't sending off the message to get the glucose receptors to the membrane. And in particular, one of these categories houses a drug that is near and dear to the hearts of many physicians, if not all of them, who treat patients with type 2 diabetes. And this drug is metformin. And we're going to go into a little segment that I like to call metformin, the story of a good plant gone better. So as early as the ancient Egyptian times, there are records of patients who have displayed sweet, sugary urine, and hyperurination, so too much urination, being treated with a concoction of nuts and grains and fruits, and oftentimes these patients still died anyway. However, we got better record-keeping and better physicians as time went on from our first descriptions of diabetes, and we're going to fast forward to the 1600s, where a physician named Nicholas Culpepper described using an herbal infusion primarily consisting of a plant called Galega officinalis to treat hyperurination and the diabetes that was associated with it. So he gave patients this homemade drug based on this plant, and it actually helped them improve. They stopped urinating so much, which was his first sort of output that he looked for. If there was less of it, then that shows that it was treat that this drug was treating whatever problem they were having. People started to take notice of this. So this is one of the early publications showing that there is a plant which can be used as a treatment for diabetes. There was no differentiation between type 1 and type 2 at that time, but you take what you can get. And as time went on, people continued to look at this plant, Galega officinalis. And now we call it by a lot of different names. French lilac, goat's rue, or in the United States, the particularly unusual name of professor weed. And this plant can be found in most temperate regions of the world. It grows to be about three feet tall, has really lovely flowers that are white, blue, and purple. And in the United States, we consider it to be a class A weed in 35 out of the 50 states. And it appears on the database of poisonous plants. As people went on to experiment with, I'm just going to call it French lilac, Professor Weed, I can't say that with a straight face. So as people went on to use French lilac as the basis for a treatment for patients with diabetes, the technology became better and better, and early chemists started making distillations of the active ingredients and the main compounds that were found in French lilac. And what they found eventually is that the primary compound in French lilac, which seemed to be causing this reversal of diabetes, was guanidine. And in particular, it is galligene or isoamylene guanidine. What this compound is, is the predecessor to one of 11 categories of diabetes treatment drugs, the biguanines. And it inspired a whole series of drugs based on its chemical makeup. Which is pretty common strategy, right? When we're synthesizing new drugs. 
Yes, when we synthesize new drugs, what we tend to do is a lot of drugs, not all of them, but a lot of our classic drugs, um, think aspirin, salicylic acid, things like that, come from plants. Aspirin comes from willow bark. Lots of plants are where we get most of our early drugs from. However, while those plant-based therapies worked well enough for people 200 years ago, we kind of hold ourselves to different standards now. And when we isolate these active compounds in their purest form, a lot of the time they can become quite toxic to us if they're not masked with all the other plant mush in the tincture that people were concocting. So what we tend to do as chemists and as biologists trying to solve a problem is if we know that a molecule with a certain structure can treat this disease but also causes toxic side effects, what we can do is we can slightly tweak the structure of the molecule. At little points, we can just change one thing about it. And nowadays, we actually have facilities that are so big and so powerful, we can make tens of thousands of changes to one molecule and test them all against each other at a single time. So from this list of these dozens of different molecules that were made from the basis of the guanidine compound, there were a couple that sort of stood out as three front runners that people took and ran with in the early 1920s for clinical trials. And these were phenoformin, buformin, and metformin. In 1922, metformin was first synthesized in Dublin, and it was screened along with a number of its chemical cousins, and it was shown that metformin could lower blood glucose, and it had fewer adverse effects than its predecessor chemical drugs. However, the problem with 1922 was it was a hard year to get the spotlight because insulin was also discovered in the same year. So metformin became the appreciated but unloved older child? Uh, ancient Egypt, yes. <laughs> so metformin was shoved to the wayside and was not as interesting in comparison to the totally amazing discovery, which was the isolation and the description of insulin itself. However, it was noted that metformin as well as phenoformin and buformin could lower blood glucose with relatively few adverse effects. In 1957, in Paris, there were a number of trials of metformin, which was at that point referred to as glucophage, probably in a French accent, but I can't do that. Glucophage means glucose eater. And it was studied in human trials, and metformin was shown to lower the blood glucose in patients with type 2 diabetes, but not in patients without diabetes. Because that's a really good point. You don't want a drug that's just going to drop blood glucose and then drop it right down to super low levels because that's just as bad. Exactly. So being able to lower them to a healthy amount so you're in that nice tight range that your body likes to be in without going too low is really important. And a lot of the old drugs that were made to treat hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, they, they treated high blood sugar but then you had almost no blood sugar, and that is super dangerous, and that could kill people just as easily. So in this 1957 trial, uh, metformin did great. It was very well received by patients. In 1978, there was a tr the first trial in the United States on metformin and phenoformin. Now, phenoformin was a more active variety of metformin, and it was actually the favored version, because why would you take the less active version of a drug that you need anyway? However, these drugs were withdrawn because phenoformin led to increased incidences of side effects, including lactic acidosis, which is not excellent. So people were a little gun-shy of metformin after being so chemically similar to phenoformin. In 1995, metformin was finally approved in the United States after being approved and widely used in Europe for 20 years at this point. What do you do? And it began its term, its reigning term, currently reigning term, as the frontline prescription therapy for type 2 diabetes. The effects of metformin have been widely studied at this point. In 1998, the UK Prospective Diabetes Study examined a big population of patients. And in this study, they looked at type 2 diabetes patients who were overweight who were treated with metformin. And this big study showed that just taking metformin decreased the number of diabetes-associated deaths as well as, you know, comorbid diseases and was also associated with less weight gain and fewer low blood sugar events 
compared to the use of sulfonylureas, which are another kind of type 2 diabetes treatment, as well as insulin. So now metformin reigns supreme as being one of the biggest prescribed drugs to patients presenting with type 2 diabetes. But at this point, metformin was still a mystery at the end of the 1990s as to how it actually worked. So we knew that it worked, but we just didn't really know how. And at this point, it's still a little ambiguous. But in 2000, two different groups published right about the same time that metformin appears to indirectly cause a lowering of blood sugar through inhibiting or blocking the activity of one of the important pieces of the mitochondria. And metformin blocks the activity, which causes the cell to think that there's low energy available and turns on a kinase called AMP kinase, which is a big nutrition sensor. When AMP kinase is activated, it causes a bunch of different cellular effects. And one of those main ones is the mobilization of glucose receptors to the surface of the cell. So what metformin does is it tricks the cell into thinking that there's low energy, activates this big signaler, and causes that to shuttle glucose receptors to the surface of the cell, bringing the blood glucose down, gives the cells their energy, everybody's happy. So it tricks the body, it tricks the cell. It does, and they're still not actually sure, from the papers that I was reading, they're still not actually sure how it physically inhibits, because it doesn't seem like it goes in and binds to it. I think there's some more reading to be done here, but it blocks the activity of complex one. There's no way this drug will get approved today. At this point, we need a lot more background to approve drugs, and this is something that we constantly see, even with things like birth control, which were approved, you know, decades ago, which would not be approved now because of the side effects that people see. It's good that we're being more careful. We are lucky that this literally ancient drug, metformin, has been able to be with us because it's really helped a lot of people live healthier lives and not suffer from severe consequences of type 2 diabetes. So that's the story of metformin. It's still ongoing. We're still still figuring out how exactly it works and what exactly it does. And people are always on the hunt for bigger and better drugs or ultimately ways to prevent and reverse type 2 diabetes without the messy intervention of changing your whole lifestyle and taking drugs. And if you're interested, again, please feel free to check out our layover on insulin for more information and stay tuned for our interview next episode with a scientist who actually has type 1 diabetes, and we'll talk more about that. All right, to close out our first full episode about diabetes, we're going to do a special diabetes-themed MythBuster. Lay it on me, Jackie. What's the myth this time? Brace yourself. It comes from a blog online. I already hate it. Called whattoexpect.com. Okay. So it's a pregnancy blog site. Or forum. I guess it's a discussion forum site. And there is a post that starts with, is gestational diabetes a myth? Goodness. Yes. And it cites a article from gentlebirth.org where they state that there is in a national trial that occurred in the early 1980s when some doctors at Cornell University Medical Center screened women for gestational diabetes routinely and others did not, no difference in perinatal mortality and morbidity rates were found between screened and unscreened populations. So then the person goes on after quoting the study to say, sounds like a good way for hospitals to rack up more billable services to me. Thoughts? I'm approaching my third trimester and I'm going to refuse the test, I think. So they're claiming it's a money grab. Yes, they're claiming, and the test she's referring to is the glucose tolerance test where um, people who are suspected to have blood glucose problems, they're given glucose, a big dose of glucose, and then they test the body later, a few hours later, to see how it responds to make sure that you're processing it correctly. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack here. (laughs) Yeah, it's not good. But I guess to start, let's back up for a second and just make sure that we define what gestational diabetes is, because this is outside of the realm of type 1 or type 2, kind of. 
Yes, so gestational diabetes is the term given to insulin resistance or increased blood glucose during pregnancy. So that's fascinating. That's a very temporary kind of diabetes. And is that treated with insulin and or therapeutics? It can be. So it's been found that most women during pregnancy have elevated blood glucose levels. That that just is something that naturally happens. And it's generally later in, um, later term during the pregnancy that this develops. And generally your body will then crank out more insulin to compensate, but sometimes it can't. And then you're stuck with Ele- uh, dangerously elevated levels of blood glucose. Because and that's when they would intervene with therapeutics. Because slight elevation of blood glucose, especially when you're carrying a developing fetus, is not unrealistic because it takes a lot of energy for cells to divide, 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 divide. And that's basically all that that fetus is doing in there is just dividing like crazy. So it needs lots and lots of energy to get that, and it gets that from the mother. Right. Yeah. And so it... At least in my mind, I don't think we know exactly why we get elevated blood glucose during pregnancy, Um, but it it seems kind of to make sense to me, right? Like your ramped up metabolism, as we talked about earlier, hormones signal to your adipose tissue, and Lord knows there's lots of hormones going on during pregnancy, so that could be leading to some uh, kind of dysregulation of your insulin Mm -hmm. signaling. But for a good chunk of women who present with diet with gestational diabetes, it's just un- unlucky situ- situation. Yeah, they think that there's a similar set of um, kind of contributing risk factors as to type two, um, but it's not clear cut. And there is a wide range of numbers um, given to the amount of people or amount of women who get. Um, gestational diabetes. Um, It ranges between 1 and 14 percent depending on what population is sampled and what test is used. For the record, the range of 1 percent to 14 percent really sucks. It's not great, but it is what it is. And a lot of these pregnant people don't have, um, especially the reasons for some of these lower numbers, is a lot of these pregnant people might not have adequate access to care. There are different racial disparities in pregnant populations who may have more or less access to receiving good prenatal tests and good access to doctors. There are socioeconomic factors and there are genetic factors too that just like type 2 diabetes where we don't really know, there's a lot of moving parts. But Another factor there is just differences between individual studies and how they're done and where they're done. And this kind of goes back to that original post that I mentioned at the beginning. But just because one study doesn't show convincing evidence doesn't mean that's the whole story. How many women did they look at? Did they have proper controls? We have a blog post coming out that I wrote on a bit of a, I don't want to call it a rampage, But when doing research for the uh, talc and ovarian cancer post and conversation, I came across a lot of conflicting evidence from clinical studies. So I wrote a blog post that will be up on our blog this week about interpreting human studies with a hefty serving of salt and how interpreting these clinical studies needs to be done very carefully because there are a lot of problems. Humans are very bad lab rats, like we've said before in the past, so... Just because one study says there's no, no significant change does not mean that A, that study was done in a way that could make that statement, and B, it does not mean that that is still true in every population. What are the risk factors associated with gestational diabetes? So why is it so important that we catch it and that we treat it? And for a half century, we've known that having diabetes increases the chances for complications during pregnancy and birth. Elevated blood glucose is has been associated with large for gestational age infants. 
neonatal hyperinsulinemia, which means the baby has too much insulin right after it's born, and that actually leads to hypoglycemia. So immediately post-birth, they have this huge drop in blood glucose, which can be very dangerous for a newborn. And preeclampsia, which is a very dangerous condition And there are some evidence that there's long-term consequences due to gestational diabetes for both the mother and the baby. It may lead to increased incidence of type 2 diabetes for both. Which is fascinating, but it doesn't... But it's not, it's not surprising that being exposed to that high blood sugar, higher than normal high blood sugar as an inf- as a fetus, could predispose you to having issues with your insulin signaling as an adult. There have been studies done on people who were born, who were conceived and born in times of like the Great Depression and other nutritional scarcity. scarcity and those people have different metabolic activities based on just on the regular diet that everyone else had while they were growing up, even after the nutritional scarcity passed, when they were developing as a fetus, their bodies were conditioned to take in the nutrients in a different sort of way and to harbor those for times of scarcity instead of adjusting to when there is enough food and things like that. So the fact that being exposed to that high insulin, high blood sugar environment growing up is, it'll be interesting to watch those studies come out because it seems that Your life in the womb does not leave you once you leave that womb. So I hope we've shown you that gestational diabetes is a very real thing and it has some very real consequences. Even though there's a lot we don't know and we're still figuring out about what causes it and its long-term consequences, I would highly encourage you, if you are expecting to go ahead and get that diabetes test or that glucose test when time comes around and your doctor's ready to do that. And the best thing to do is talk with your doctor if you have any questions or concerns. We hope that we've demystified some of the scariness of this big sugary concoction that they make you drink and then test your blood sugar later. But we promise that it is not just a money grab. It's real and it serves a very real purpose, which is keeping the mother and the child safe and healthy and keeping everyone moving like they should. Healthy mamas, healthy babies. And with that, that has been another episode of Flyover State Science. Thank you to Bryce Jensen for our jingle. Thank you to PodTrack for keeping track of our analytics. Thank you. Our listeners for visiting our Facebook page and visiting our website, flyoverstatescience.com. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Rate us and review us. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have any more topics for Mythbusters segments, please submit them to us through Facebook or through our website at the Contact Us portal. Thank you, and tune in next week for our interview with Dr. Kristen Manton, a researcher who lives with type 1 diabetes, as we talk about type 1 and what life is like living with type 1 diabetes. <laughs>